Many bureaucrats explicitly told me that they didn't want to serve in places that were full of their co-ethnics. And I always thought that this was funny because most people feel more comfortable among their co-ethnics. They grew up in the same culture. But when a leader or a president asks a bureaucrat to coerce, well, then that bureaucrat finds it much more difficult to coerce their quote-unquote brothers. How can you do this to, to your own kin? Welcome to Scope Conditions. From the University of British Columbia, I'm Young Young Zhou. And I'm Alan Jacobs. Today on Scope Conditions, a conversation with Dr. May Hassan. May is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Michigan and the author of a recent book, Regime Threats and State Solutions, about how leaders manipulate the bureaucracy to maintain their hold on power. Imagine a political system in which the president has the power to hire, fire, and shuffle bureaucrats in the most important state agencies. How would the leader strategically choose to wield this authority? She could pack the state with her own supporters, for example, with members of her ethnic group, to ensure loyalty and to maximize the chances that presidential edicts will be faithfully carried out. But holding power often means striking bargains with rival elites. Usually the best way to do that is to give other elites a foothold in the state and hand out jobs to their supporters. A leader who packs the state has fewer spoils to share. May's book delves into this core dilemma of power maintenance. How can leaders keep their friends close and their enemies closer? When do executives opt to share power, and when do they choose to hoard it by staffing the state with loyalists? In today's episode, we talk with May about her theory of bureaucratic control. It's an argument in which leaders don't just choose bureaucrats based on their loyalties, but also manipulate civil servants' loyalties and attachments by strategically placing them and shuffling them across regions of the country. We talk about how May tests her argument by using a vast original data set on decades of Kenyan administrative appointments, spanning both the country's autocratic and democratic periods. May also tells us how she stumbled onto the puzzle of bureaucratic manipulation while digging through archival data for an altogether different project. This is a conversation filled with insight into how politicians cultivate power. We hope you enjoy listening. If you want to stay informed about future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at Scope Conditions and check out our website, scopeconditionspodcast.com, where you can also find references to all the academic works we discuss. And if you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Now, here's our conversation with May Hassan. Hi, May. Welcome to Scope Conditions. Hi, Alan. Hi, Yang. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, talk to you all about my book. So in the book's preface, you write about a rumor that you heard while you were in the field. And this rumor started you down the road of studying bureaucratic politics and how the state gets staffed. Could you tell us about that rumor and, and what you found intriguing about it? The rumor I had heard was that In Kenya, the country that my book is based off of, the country's second president, Daniel Arab Moy, had a big map 
of all of the country's administrative districts on his office. And in the capital of each administrative district was a pin with a little paper flag on it. And on that paper flag was the name of the district commissioner, which we can think of as an appointed governor that was stationed in that district. And every so often when President Moy was feeling particularly threatened, apparently he would go to the wall, remove some of the pins, put them into new spots, get his uh, staff to make new pins with new administrative names on them and put them on to other administrative uh, district capitals. And that apparently is how he made a lot of the staffing decisions for the country. He had a really strong sense, according to this rumor, about the willingness and the ability of these administrators and knew where he wanted them. And so he personally would ensure that the bureaucrats that he knew could do specific tasks were in the places where those tasks were, their completion was most crucial. And so that was the idea that really helped frame much of my dissertation in my book research. That's a fascinating story. So fundamentally, your book is about how leaders hold on to power and work their will on the levers of the administrative state. And empirically, the book focuses on Kenya, as you said, a country in which the institutional setup gives the president a great deal of leeway in appointing and promoting the bureaucrats who staff the state. And it's also a place in which ethnic cleavages are highly salient, with rival ethnic groups vying for political power. So as Kenyan presidents try to exert control over the state, one thing we might expect them to do is to pack the bureaucracy with members of their own ethnic group, uh, who the president might expect to be the most loyal, the most likely to carry out his orders. Is that what we see Kenya's presidents doing? What's interesting is this packing of the state. That's not what Kenyan presidents have tended to do. And the civil service in Kenya is actually really remarkably diverse. One euphemism that bureaucrats kept telling me during my field research is that bureaucrats are the quote-unquote face of Kenya. Most agencies are public-facing, and so bureaucrats then should quote-unquote look like the country and be representative of the country's ethnic diversity. Some bureaucrats were actually much more blunt and said, you know, there are 41 tribes in Kenya, so why should only one tribe, meaning the president's tribe, dominate? And at first I thought those were just things that they had been told to say by their superiors so that the civil service wouldn't get in trouble for, for being packed. But then when I actually looked at the data, the ethnic diversity has really persisted throughout Kenya's history. My book focuses on Kenya's provincial administration. So as in any country, Kenya has numerous agencies and numerous ministries. But the provincial administration, or PA as it's known for short, is the one that's the most firmly under the president's control. These bureaucrats actually call themselves the president's hands at the grassroots. So if we would think that there should be packing, this is the agency where we should expect packing to be most severe. But when I looked at the actual ethnic composition of the PA, I found that it was actually really diverse and has been since independence, both through the country's current electoral and democratic era, but also during the country's autocratic era. And that was really puzzling to me. The civil service was not even packed during the country's autocratic era, but it was instead actually quite reflective of the ethnic diversity of the country. For instance, the country's first 
president who was arguably the country's strongest autocratic leader. Even at the height of his presidency, this agency, the provincial administration, never had more than half of all officers from this president's ethnic group. And that might sound like a lot, but his ethnic group was the country's plurality and comprised almost 25% of the country. And so, yes, for sure, his ethnic group was definitely overrepresented, but there is no way that you could look at that statistic and claim that the bureaucracy was packed. So this really gets to the dilemma that's at the center of your book. On the one hand, um, we have demands of coalition building with elites of the many other ethnic groups in Kenya. But on the other hand is the need for the president to maintain control. Can you conceptualize that dilemma for us? Presidents across regime type under electoral and autocratic regimes, while they face a myriad of threats to their rule, and perhaps most obvious are what scholars tend to call popular threats, threats to presidents from regular, ordinary people acting collectively, mobilizing together. And so popular threats tend to manifest themselves through protest movements or popular uprisings, like the Arab Spring or the 2018-2019 popular uprising that unseated um, the autocrat in my native Sudan. But presidents fundamentally don't just have the luxury of only dealing with one kind of threat. They also have to contend with what are known as elite threats. So threats from other individuals who have sufficient power and sufficient clout and who also tend to be angling for the presidency, angling for more power. And more often than not, elite threats in Africa are from elites of a different ethnic group. These elite threats tend to manifest themselves in the form of, for instance, a coup d'etat, or perhaps another direct challenge for the presidency, like actually maybe running for, for election, or the imposition of executive constraints on the leader. So political science has given us a whole host of strategies that leaders can use to prevent each type of threat. And oftentimes we think of stopping popular threats from emerging and growing by suppressing dissidents, by collecting intel, by passing out goodies to buy off or to win over new supporters. And central to these strategies is a need for bureaucrats who are going to act loyally with the leader's orders and actually do what it is that they're tasked with doing. The strategies that political science gives us about how leaders can stop elite threats tend to center instead on incorporation or coalition building. The idea here being that a leader can prevent elites from acting against him by preemptively offering that elite a really cushy position within the state, and thus the ability for that elite to procure state resources for themselves, and also in sub-Saharan Africa for her co-ethnics, for those people who support her. And in Africa, one of the most important goodies that an elite can secure for a follower is a civil service job. And so in Kenya and across the world, the elite threat problem is seen as much more pressing, as much more salient. For instance, each of Kenya's first two presidents faced coup attempts. And so this has meant that all Kenyan presidents have tended to incorporate rival elites of different ethnic groups in their attempts to prevent those elite threats from occurring. And as a result, they've let co-ethnics of those rival elites into the state and including into the provincial administration. And so what this means then is that even though presidents would benefit from a packed state, 
The thing is, the costs are just too high. It's not worth having a packed state of co-ethnics for a leader because then the leader can't incorporate rival elites and can't allow those rival elites to give cushy jobs to their own followers. Okay, so in order to stave off threats from rival elites, presidents need to build coalitions with those elites, incorporate those elites into the executive, and hire their supporters and their co-ethnics into the bureaucracy. But this then creates challenges of controlling a bureaucracy that is not packed with the president's own co-ethnics. Could you elaborate for us on the problems of bureaucratic control that presidents face? Presidents have what we would call in political science a sizable principal-agent problem vis-a-vis bureaucrats when the state isn't packed, when they practice coalition building. What I mean by a principal-agent problem is, well, leaders who are the principal, once they endow bureaucrats, agents, with state authority, they expect these bureaucrats to use that state authority to carry out the tasks or the mandates that the principal, the leader, has asked of them. But once bureaucrats have this authority, they might not always comply. They might instead shirk. And that's what we call a principal-agent problem. When the outcomes that a principal can expect are dependent on the behaviors of someone else on an agent. And so we tend to think of unpacked bureaucracies as really exacerbating the principal-agent problem. In a sense, a leader has to worry that if he endows a bureaucrat with state authority, then that bureaucrat might not use that state authority to work on behalf of the leader staying in power, but might instead, most worrisome for the leader, might actually use that authority on behalf of another political leader and probably the political elite that got that bureaucrat the job in the first place. The thing is, there are other principal agent problems that presidents face when thinking about their bureaucracy that scholars of bureaucracy have tended to worry about. And so whereas disloyalty, what I just described, makes a bureaucrat an agent of another elite, we can also think of a bureaucrat as instead working as an agent on behalf of one of two other principles. So in the first place, the bureaucrat might act on behalf of themselves. We might think that this is pretty standard fare for much of the developing world where bureaucrats might use their position to, for instance, enrich themselves. So for instance, pocketing the money that they should have dispersed as school bursaries for their own funds. Second, we might think that a bureaucrat can act on behalf of the local people that she serves, in a sense, to be an agent for the local area. And I think this is especially a problem for bureaucrats and agencies that actually work at the grassroots level. So I'm not talking about, for instance, employees at the Ministry of Water headquarters in Nairobi, but instead I'm talking about the field staff that is actually monitoring irrigation projects around the country. And so with regards to the second principal agent problem, it's due to the fact that bureaucrats are fundamentally people and they have feelings. And bureaucrats are really liable to feel a connection with the locals that they are meant to govern over. And this feeling tends to get stronger if they've lived in an area for a really long time or they've developed strong relationships, perhaps because they're the same ethnic group and feel a connection with them. 
And so what we tend to see with this principal agent problem is instead of the bureaucrat enforcing centrally dictated mandates, the bureaucrat ends up being an emissary of the local area to the center, as opposed to dictating the center's directives to the local area. So the president faces really three kinds of principal agent problems in trying to control the bureaucracy. As you said, for one thing, bureaucrats may act as agents of the rival elites who got them their jobs. Bureaucrats may act as agents on behalf of themselves and pursue their own self-interest rather than following the president's orders. And bureaucrats may become agents of the local areas that they're serving. The literature on bureaucratic politics discusses a range of strategies that principals use to try to address principal agent problems, to try to control their agents. Could you lay out what a few of the most prominent strategies in the literature are? In thinking about how to mitigate the principal agent problem of a bureaucrat working on behalf of another elite, the main strategy is for leaders to pack their bureaucracy, as I was saying before. And so the idea being that if the bureaucracy is full of loyal bureaucrats, then you can expect those bureaucrats to use their state authority in the manner that a leader asks of them. On the other hand, when we think about the principal agent problem vis-a-vis local areas, and bureaucrats becoming local emissaries of an area to the center. The main way that the literature has suggested that leaders can solve that principal agent problem is to lower the bonds that a bureaucrat can develop or naturally has with locals. And this is done often by frequently shuffling bureaucrats across stations, so not letting a bureaucrat get too comfortable, create too many bonds in one area, shuffling them to a new post quickly, or by ensuring that bureaucrats never serve in their quote-unquote home area, never allowing them um, to serve in an area where they innately have lots of bonds. In Africa, we might think that these are places where their co-ethnics live, so on purpose putting them uh, next to non-co-ethnics. And with regards to bureaucrats acting as agents for themselves in engaging in corruption, We tend to think that leaders can increase the level of monitoring that they have on bureaucrats so that bureaucrats recognize that if they do engage in extracurricular activities with their state authority on behalf of themselves, then they will get caught. So you see these strategies, packing the bureaucracy, shuffling bureaucrats around so they don't become too attached or not posting them in their home area, trying to increase monitoring. These strategies are are also rather limited. They bring their own problems. So to help sharpen our sense of the dilemma that these leaders confront, can you describe some of the limitations for these strategies? Why are these not silver bullet solutions to the principal agent problem? Fundamentally, each of the solutions to the principal agent problem is limited in that it exacerbates another problem or introduces another problem that weakens leaders' hold on power. So when we think about packing the state, if a leader packs the state, well, then the leader doesn't have any more positions to distribute 
to rival elites when he incorporates them. That rival elite isn't going to be willing to be incorporated if he can't also give goodies to his own followers. And so while packing the state might allow a leader to ensure compliance with his directives, well, this exacerbates the elite threat problem. On the other hand, if we think about leaders shuffling bureaucrats and rotating them across stations quickly, or not posting them among their co-ethnics, this is thought to actually lower the level of development that an area can actually see. We would think that bureaucrats who know an area well, who have strong bonds with locals, who care about those residents, are going to work that much harder to try to increase the level of development of that area. So even if a leader can ensure that a bureaucrat doesn't become an emissary of the local area to the center by often shuffling them across posts, well, this prevents the bureaucrat from actually investing in the area and, and working that much harder to increase that area's development. Then with regards to monitoring, we often think that monitoring is a great way to ensure that bureaucrats don't shirk or that bureaucrats actually comply with what they were expected to do. But oftentimes bureaucrats are tasked with things that are really, really difficult to measure. And so if bureaucrats know that they're being monitored, then they're going to try to increase or improve the measurable outcomes of their work as opposed to working hard to actually achieve like the real outcome that they were expected to do. So a really prominent example is for thinking about public school teachers in Kenya. There's lots of absenteeism in Kenya with teachers, so teachers who are supposed to show up for class but don't. And oftentimes you hear that teachers will show up for class on the days that they know the district education officer is coming by, but will not show up on other days. And so these teachers know they're being monitored and so then try to comply with the monitoring directive, showing up when the district education officer is around, but then aren't actually showing up on other days when that um, when monitoring isn't happening. So given that leaders face both popular and elite threats, and given that, you know, some of the strategies that they can take that you just laid out, they each have their own limitations and problems, a lot of your argument is telling us um, what leaders can choose to do in these situations. Can you summarize your argument in a nutshell? My core argument is that in countries such as Kenya, where elite threats are considered more pressing than popular ones, leaders are going to incorporate rival elites and allow those rival elites co-ethnics into the state. And this means that leaders do not have a packed bureaucracy. And so my argument then looks at how leaders manage bureaucrats um, to ensure compliance, to put down the popular threats that might arise. And my argument is premised on two key ideas. And the first, the first is that the leader still has a core group of bureaucrats who are loyal. And those bureaucrats who are considered most loyal are going to be sent to the parts of the country where compliance is most necessary. And the second part is that leaders will strategically manipulate the embeddedness of bureaucrats across the country and allow bureaucrats to become more embedded in places that the leader wants to co-opt and instead 
strategically lower that embeddedness in areas that the leader needs to coerce. We're going to unpack that argument in some detail, but before we do that, could you outline for us the scope conditions of the theory? To what kinds of political contexts is this argument meant to apply? One of the most important scope conditions for my theory is that the executive has strong control over the state. Or rather, the more executive control that the, the leader has over his bureaucracy, the more that we can expect the leader to be a- actually able to strategically manipulate bureaucrats to ensure compliance. So I think that's a really core scope condition. Another scope condition, which I think is really integral, is that I focus on countries with weak parties. And this is important because strong party systems allow leaders another avenue by which they can control and manipulate bureaucratic incentives. So bureaucrats might, for instance, be loyal to a leader regardless of their ethnic identity because they see incentives and and their ability to move through the party organization. Strong parties might also allow a leader a parallel monitoring system at the grassroots. So whereas in Kenya, for instance, which has weak parties, the, the executive can't really monitor bureaucrats through party offices. That might not be the case, say, for instance, in China where uh, the local CCP branches are arguably much stronger and can provide a check on bureaucrats at the grassroots level there and and filter it up to, to the center. So in your argument, leaders are using the bureaucracy to do a couple of different things. They're using the bureaucracy to co-opt certain segments of the population and prevent popular challenges from arising. They're also using the bureaucracy to coerce populations in areas where challenges have already emerged. And then they're manipulating the embeddedness of bureaucrats in their local areas in particular ways uh, in order to maximize the chances that those bureaucrats are actually going to do what the leader wants them to do. And here, there are basically three moving parts of what leaders need to consider when sending bureaucrats to different places. First, the alignment of areas of the country with the leader. Second, the degree of loyalty of the bureaucrat to the leader. And third, the embeddedness of bureaucrats within particular local areas. So let's walk through each of these. First, what do you mean by the alignment of local areas? So by alignment, I mean how an area perceives the current leader vis-a-vis a viable replacement. So vis-a-vis another elite who might become president. To determine alignment, we should ask, is the current leader better for the area's development and uh, provision of public goods? Or does the area think that a viable replacement would privilege the area more? And here I'm mostly talking about who does an area think will provide the highest number of public goods, will privilege the area in development projects, will not repress or coerce the area. So that's the first moving part of your theory, the political alignment of local areas relative to the president. The second moving part is bureaucratic loyalty. What do we mean by the loyalty of bureaucrats? By loyalty, I mean the extent to which a bureaucrat thinks that she stands to personally benefit from this leader staying in office vis-a-vis a viable replacement. And 
when I say personally benefit, I don't just mean corruption, but I'm actually thinking of career prospects. Does this bureaucrat believe that her career prospects are really good under this current leader? Does she think that she can move through the ranks quite quickly to a really prestigious high position? And if so, then the bureaucrat will be more likely to carry out any and all orders that the leader asks of her. If her career prospects are good, then she's going to be more loyal because she wants this leader to stay around so that she has that time to rise through the ranks. On the other hand, those whose career prospects would be better under another leader may instead act disloyally towards this leader and instead use their state authority to tip the scales in favor of their favored elite. And so we might expect co-ethnics of the president to be more loyal because they will see their career prospects as being stronger than non-coethnics of the president? Exactly. So even though the bureaucracy isn't fully packed with the president's co-ethnics, president's co-ethnics do tend to do better. They still comprise more positions and they might have their salaries, for instance, topped up under the table. They might enjoy extra benefits that other bureaucrats don't. Even in unpacked bureaucracies, a president's co-ethnics are still thought of as being more loyal. So lastly, we have embeddedness. And one of the most fascinating aspects of your argument is your focus on the embeddedness of bureaucrats, which is something that can change over time and something that leaders seek to strategically manipulate. What is embeddedness and what does it look like? So the third moving part of my theory is this concept of embeddedness. And by embeddedness, I mean the social relationships that a bureaucrat has to locals in the area that she's assigned. And so in a sense, this variable recognizes that bureaucrats are people, that they're human, and their social relationships with the people over whom they govern, whom they live next to, affect both their willingness and ability to perform the state tasks that a leader asks of them in their area. So one example of high embeddedness that I detail in my book comes from an area in Kenya called Tinderet. For those of us who drink lots of tea, we know that some of the best tea in the world comes from Tinderet. And this one bureaucrat I was interviewing, who was posted in Tinderet, happened to be among her co-ethnics. Tinderet is an area inhabited by the Kalenjin ethnic group, and the bureaucrat herself was an ethnic Kalenjin. And she was posted to that area for almost four years. And one of the villages whose livelihood is tea production was going through a rut because their irrigation system was broken. And so this bureaucrat, because she had such close bonds with the locals, actually used some of her own salary to help repair that village's irrigation system and tried to secure extra financing from Nairobi, going out of her way to really ensure that this area was taken care of. I see that as a prime example of some of the benefits of high embeddedness. This bureaucrat had such a strong bond to these locals that she was really willing to go above and beyond to make sure that this area was taken care of. And embeddedness in your argument has a sort of double-edged quality, right? In that it can enhance bureaucrats' ability and motivation to get things done in a community, but it can also 
have implications for their loyalty to the executive. I mean, we could imagine what would have happened if the president had asked that bureaucrat in Tinderet to start coercing residents in that area, right? Exactly. So other examples from my field research really show some of the negative sides of embeddedness, especially when it comes to asking bureaucrats to carry out more coercive tasks. Many bureaucrats explicitly told me that they didn't want to serve in places that were full of their co-ethnics. And I always thought that this was funny because most people feel more comfortable among their co-ethnics in that they speak the local language. They grew up in the same culture and have the same customs. And so they understand what's going on in the area a bit better. But when a leader or a president asks a bureaucrat to coerce, well, then that bureaucrat finds it much more difficult to coerce their quote-unquote brothers, which is a euphemism for co-ethnics in Kenya, that people will start to speak really ill of you. How can you do this to, to your own kin? Whereas if uh, they found it, much, bureaucrats found it much easier to coerce non-co-ethnics because there wasn't this expectation that you would give your co-ethnics a break. And embeddedness isn't just a function of co-ethnicity in your argument, right? It, it also arises from time spent in a community, doesn't it? Exactly. So we can think of a bureaucrat developing strong bonds over an area through a myriad of ways, not just because of co-ethnic or innate reasons, but perhaps because that bureaucrat has lived there for 10 years or so and now speaks the local language, now has learned about and appreciated the local customs in that part of the country. And so embeddedness can develop over time as opposed to just being something that someone is in a sense born with. Which also means that it's there for presidents to manipulate through their staffing decisions, right? Exactly. There's multiple ways in which leaders can manipulate this embeddedness. Great. So taking these three moving parts together, alignment, bureaucratic loyalty, and embeddedness, you then derive a set of empirical predictions. These are to some degree general, but also to some degree keyed to features of the logic of competition in the Kenyan case. What do you see as the theory's central predictions about how leaders will deploy bureaucrats? The first is that leaders will send bureaucrats who are most loyal to those areas where compliance is most crucial. Different leaders expect compliance to be most crucial in different ways. Some leaders who are really in need of shoring up popular support might think that compliance is going to be most crucial in core areas to really ensure that one's base is fired up about the leader. Other presidents might face protest activity in opposition parts of the country or might face um, strike activity or rebellions even. And so in those places where holding power is going to be about suppressing uh, opposition areas, well, leaders are going to send loyal bureaucrats to those opposition areas. The second big empirical uh, prediction that comes out of my theory is that, that leaders will strategically manipulate the embeddedness of bureaucrats. And I look specifically at embeddedness through co-ethnicity and embeddedness through long tenures, with a leader strategically increasing embeddedness in areas that the leader wants to co-opt, whereas a leader will strategically decrease embeddedness by constantly shuffling bureaucrats and by not posting co-ethnics in areas that the leader wants to coerce. So just to dwell for a moment on this second prediction, what you're saying is that leaders are thinking about the ways in which bureaucrats 
develop social relationships in the places where they're serving, and that they strategically manipulate those relationships through uh, the way in which they place bureaucrats with co-ethnics or non-co-ethnics, or the length of time that they let bureaucrats serve in those areas, in order, in a sense, to manipulate those bureaucrats' motivations. Is that, do I have that right? Exactly. So in a sense, one way to take my argument about embeddedness is that leaders are really leveraging and, in a sense, leaning into the fact that bureaucrats can become agents of the local area. So if a leader wants an area co-opted, then the leader doesn't have to manipulate the bureaucrat's incentives to comply with the leader's demands, but instead might manipulate the bureaucrat's incentives to want to help the area so that the bureaucrat isn't complying out of loyalty to the center. Even a disloyal bureaucrat might still work to help a local area. And so by leveraging the relationship and the social bonds that bureaucrats have with locals, leaders can can get their intended outcome in a sense, irregardless of the loyalty of the bureaucrat in that position. Okay, so we're going to talk about how you go about testing those two core predictions. But before we get there, could you give us some background on Kenya as a case to help us see what makes it a good context in which to examine this theory's empirical implications? In the first place, Kenya is a country with very salient identity cleavages. Ethnicity is um, a very strong cleavage in Kenyan politics. And if you know a bureaucrat's ethnicity in relation to the president's, you have a good sense of where they're going to fall on the loyalty-disloyalty spectrum. It's not perfect, obviously, but ethnicity does really temper a bureaucrat's loyalty to the president. And similarly, the majority ethnicity in an area can really give us a sense of how that area views the leader. There have been a whole host of studies showing that presidents have privileged co-ethnic areas in Kenya with higher levels of education resources, higher um, levels of electricity provision, health care provision. So in Kenya, if you know the, the majority ethnicity in an area, you have a really strong prior about how they're aligned with, with the center. I think Kenya is also another great case because of variation across regime type. Kenya, like much of sub-Saharan Africa, achieved um, independence in the 1960s as an electoral regime, but then transitioned to an autocracy in in 1969 and remained in autocracy until the return of multi-party elections in 1992. Kenya's had multi-party, regular multi-party elections since then. And so I then am able to examine my theory across regime type and show that the strategic manipulation of bureaucrats, the strategic shuffling and placement of bureaucrats isn't just something that we see under the autocratic era, but we also actually see it in the democratic era as well. It's just that under the democratic era, the threats that leaders face are different. We see the places where compliance is most necessary as changing, and the places that leaders want to co-opt versus coerce changing. This change in regime type gives me analytic leverage over many different elements of the theory. Okay, so let's dive into the empirics. To undertake the quantitative analyses in your book, you needed to collect comprehensive data on a vast number of bureaucrats, specifically provincial administrative officers, over an extended time period. What does this data look like and how did you get it? 
The data collection for this project was probably my favorite element of field research. So as you said, I ended up analyzing where bureaucrats were posted and how long they were stationed there and when they got shuffled along with promotion patterns. And so I really needed regular snapshots of who bureaucrats were and where they were stationed across the country and their rank over time. And so I collected these internal documents to the provincial administration that are called administrative officer returns. And what they are, are a list of all of Kenya's administrative units that list the actual bureaucrat posted in that unit in a specific point in time. And so I collected these biannually, so twice a year, to back out how bureaucrats were shuffled and posted and managed uh, across the country. And I collected this data from independence until 2011. These returns are done at the province level. There's eight provinces in Kenya. And so I traveled to seven of the eight provinces to actually go to the archives in those specific provinces and ask for permission to get these specific documents and collect them that way. The last province that I didn't go to was northeastern Kenya, which had an insurgency by al-Shabaab at the time. And so for safety reasons, I did not go to Northeastern, but I was able to get most of the returns for that province from other provinces. And can you give us a sense of maybe like how many bureaucrats we're, we're thinking about here? So we're talking about a lot of bureaucrats here, upwards of, I believe, 15,000 specific officer jurisdiction posts um, across time. And so a, a part of this data, you needed to know exactly where, what administrative unit a bureaucrat was posted in. Um, a hiccup here is that these administrative units, we know they change over time. I think especially maybe in the 1990s, there was because of decentralization for a lot of reasons, we all of a sudden get a lot of new districts. Districts are broken up into new districts. Counties are broken up to new counties. Um, I've recently been working with geographic data in neighboring Tanzania and Uganda, and I'm getting a lot of these problems of just figuring out what units become what over time. How did you deal with that challenge? Actually, Yangying, that's a really interesting question in that my initial research was actually looking at these changes in administrative units. I was really fascinated when I initially went out into the field in questions about decentralization. In a sense, I had drunk the Kool-Aid and thought that decentralization could solve Africa's development woes. And so I wanted to trace decentralization in Kenya. So the type of decentralization that had, had been happening in Kenya was unit proliferation, where the country went from 41 administrative districts in 1991 to more than 280 by 2011. And so I wanted to map out and trace how these um, new units were created. And I remember asking archivists at different provincial archives how I can find out where new district boundaries were created. And the archivist said, well, you know, we don't actually have a map or a record of these new boundaries, but I bet you could backtrack it if you look at these administrative officer returns and look at the subunits of those districts to see how they were re-aggregated into new districts. 
And so that's what I did. I collected these administrative officer returns, not because I was particularly interested in bureaucratic movements or the strategic manipulation of bureaucrats, but because I wanted to, in a sense, actually map out where the state was. And in doing so, though, just in flipping through many of these administrative archival returns, you get a sense of the same bureaucrat might be in an area for a year and then is moved clear across the country in another post in another year, then gets moved to the headquarters. And so these questions about what explains their movement came to the forefront. Oftentimes, while waiting to get permission to enter these different archives in these small provincial towns, well, you know, I'm a social person, and I would make small talk. And often I would ask these bureaucrats who were stationed in these small towns, who grew up in other parts of the country, why they were posted where they were posted. And more often than not, these bureaucrats would complain about why they got shuffled to that station. And so as I spent more time in the field, my research interests really started changing away from these issues of decentralization and more so to these personal stories about these bureaucrats and how difficult it was to be sent across different parts of the country and how they were asked to do such different things across different stations. And so I really started through these stories that, that trying to get access for a completely different question, these conversations really helped open up my eyes as to some of the the problems that these bureaucrats face and started thinking about their incentives in relation to the leader and to these areas that they actually serve in. So you were actually using bureaucrats as kind of like the key to the crosswalk of trying to figure out how units were proliferating over time. But then that became you know, the sort of the heart of your quantitative analysis. That's super interesting. So lastly, with this archival data, you needed to figure out the ethnicity of each of the bureaucrats in your data set, um, you know, figuring out whether they're co-ethnic or not with the president, what ethnic group they're a part of um, is really integral to the three moving parts that we were talking about. Um, Alignment, loyalty, embeddedness. I can imagine that in these records, there isn't, you know, a column next to each name saying this is the ethnic group that the bureaucrat belongs to. So how do you get that variable? So I ended up figuring out the ethnicity of bureaucrats in different ways. So in the first place, I interviewed more than 100 of these bureaucrats personally. And oftentimes I wouldn't ask them for their ethnicity, but they were very explicit about it or talked about where they grew up and talked about the languages that they spoke. And so it was very easy to infer their ethnicity for that select group that I happened to interview. But in addition, in Kenya, as in many other countries, you can infer one's ethnicity from their last name. So, for instance, Kenya's second president was, was Daniel Arab Moy. Arab isn't a name. Instead, it actually means son of in the Kalenjin language. So if you know that if you see an officer who has the word Arab in their name, then they are going to be a Kalenjin. And so in some cases, it was very easy to code bureaucrats that way. And in other cases where I'm not an expert in Kenyan languages and Kenyan names. And so I hired RAs to help code these ethnicities. Second, I collected a different set of administrative officer returns. I collected the returns of very, very, very local village-level bureaucrats. They're called chiefs and assistant chiefs. And unlike the bureaucrats that I study in the book, they have to be from the local village in which they serve. And these are bureaucrats that are not posted across the country, but 
are appointed in their home village and serve there for life. And so by collecting these administrative officer returns, I created a dictionary of last names after I merged these local level village returns with census data. And so then I could figure out villages that were 90% Kalenjin or 90% Luya. And then I had a dictionary of names of people from that ethnic group. And I used that dictionary to identify my officer returns that I use in the book. And then third, while this dictionary was really useful, I couldn't identify all the names that way. The village level bureaucrats whose names I collected, it was a data set of like 15 or 20,000, but it wasn't enough to cover all of the, the variation in last names of officers that I, that I studied in the book. And so I hired Kenyan RAs to help me figure out what the ethnicity of these officers was, again, by using their last names. So for the quantitative analysis, how do you assess whether leaders are sending loyal bureaucrats to those areas where compliance is most vital? So here I relied a lot on the historiography of Kenya. I relied on other people's assessments as to where different presidents saw popular threats emerging and where different presidents saw their core support. Obviously, I looked at the ethnicity of different areas, but I also wanted to make sure that my assessment was backed up by the historical record as well. And so in assessing whether leaders sent loyal bureaucrats, I looked at where leaders sent their co-ethnic bureaucrats. Again, co-ethnic bureaucrats were the ones that they could expect the highest levels of compliance from and determined if those bureaucrats were sent to places that I and others predicted the highest levels of popular threats to emerge from. And what I found is across time, a consistent pattern of loyal bureaucrats being sent to places where popular threats might emerge. And so during the autocratic era, each leader was very deliberate about sending loyal bureaucrats to places that saw more protest activity, places that had much more rumblings against the autocrat. Um, I also saw that autocrats sent loyalists to core areas. Um, autocrats don't need that much popular support, but they still do need some level of popular support. And by sending um, loyal bureaucrats to core areas, leaders can ensure uh, a baseline level of popular support. During the electoral era, my results in a sense flipped. Each president who ran for re-election could expect electoral support from his co-ethnic base, but didn't have enough co-ethnics to win a majority or a plurality. And so each president needed to really focus on swing voters to ensure that they won at the polls. And indeed, I find that each president under multi-party elections sent loyal bureaucrats to swing areas. The idea being that these are the areas where votes are, are most crucial to win. And then the other main part of the quantitative analysis is your assessment of embeddedness and whether leaders are shuffling bureaucrats in ways that cultivate embeddedness in areas that the leader wants to co-opt and diminish embeddedness in places that the leader wants to coerce. How did you get at that and, and what did you find? So I assessed bureaucratic embeddedness in two ways. So first, I looked at innate embeddedness. And so co-ethnicity between a bureaucrat 
and to the local area, but then I also looked at embeddedness via time and looked at the length of a bureaucrat's tenure in a place. And overall, across both the autocratic and the electoral eras, I found that places that leaders wanted to co-opt, these tended to be the leader's own co-ethnic areas. These areas tended to see higher levels of co-ethnic bureaucrats and have those bureaucrats be in their stations for much longer. On the other hand, places that the leader wanted coerced tended to see bureaucrats of lower embeddedness. Under the autocratic era, these opposition areas that had a lot of protest or strike or insurgent activity, those areas tended to be governed, for instance, by non-coethnics at a much higher proportion. And those bureaucrats tended to be in their position for much, much shorter than in other parts of the country. And again, in leveraging Kenya's variation regime type, I think this really strengthens my results in that the patterns that I find in the autocratic era are, are quite similar under autocrats of different ethnicities, autocrats whose bases and opposition areas differed. And so when we have this transition between Kenya's first autocrat to its second, we also see this variation in, in management strategies change as well, even though the same underlying strategy of embeddedness and loyalty remained the same. I see the same thing again in Kenya's electoral era. So the research design allows me to look at two presidents of two different ethnicities with two different sets of swing groups and two different sets of core and opposition groups. And the overall patterns are the same, even if the regions of the country that I classify as opposition and core and swing change. You also bring a wealth of qualitative evidence to the argument there's, of course, no way that you can give listeners a full sense of that evidence. They'll have to go and read the book. But can you give us uh, some sense of how the qualitative evidence gives you additional leverage in testing the theory's logic? I think my book really benefited from this mixed method strategy of bringing to light both qualitative and quantitative evidence. And the quantitative evidence gleaned from these administrative archival returns that we were just talking about is really important in showing trends, in showing patterns, in showing that there were systematic ways in which Kenyan presidents have managed bureaucrats. But the thing is, Without context, it's really hard to figure out why it is those leaders were managing bureaucrats in those ways. My qualitative evidence was really useful here in showing the mechanisms at play and really nuancing some of the findings in my quantitative work. So one example is from this bureaucrat that I interviewed who served under Daniel Arab Moy during the transition to multi-party elections in 1992. And that period saw a whole host of ethnic violence that was actually fomented by President Moy and his cronies. The bureaucrat I was interviewing was an ethnic Kikuyu, whose ethnic group was the main group contesting President Moy in the 1990s and was the main ethnic group that was repressed and killed by this violence. And so 
when violence broke out in his jurisdiction, he did his best to stop this violence from getting out of hand. But then he was transferred almost immediately afterwards, finding out later that this violence had been planned by the center. And so he wasn't carrying out the plan quite clearly. In fact, he was acting against it. And so he was transferred in a sense because he couldn't act loyally. Those were actually words that he said. Um, he couldn't act loyally, so he couldn't serve in a jurisdiction that Moy thought was really important to his re-election chances. I also had the privilege of interviewing the permanent secretary of provincial administration. So this is the actual permanent secretary who signs off on all of the management decisions and approves all of the transfers that I ended up studying. And in asking him about how he and Moy and other regime elites have viewed bureaucrats of different ethnicities, you know, he wouldn't explicitly say that Talangin officers, he and Moy's co-ethnics, were more loyal at suppressing the opposition. But he did say very euphemistic things such as, well, you know, we could trust our Kalenjin officers to do whatever it is that we task them to do. On the other hand, when he talked about Kukudu officers, so these are officers who were co-ethnics of the opposition party during this period, he would say things, well, you know, we would get a lot of complaints from locals about Kukuyu officers, about how these Kukuyu officers were not supporting central government, how these Kukuyu officers were not supporting Moy. And instead, many of these jurisdictions, according to him, complained about how Kikuyu officers were implementing their own political agenda at the grassroots. So while these are only a few anecdotes from my field research, I think they're really important. And the rest of my qualitative evidence, um, more generally, was really important in providing context as to when and why different management practices happened and how these managerial practices actually looked on the ground. I also did a whole host of interviews with bureaucrats themselves to actually get at the two moving parts in my theory that deal with bureaucrats, loyalty and embeddedness. And so many bureaucrats talked about why they thought that they were more likely to advance under certain presidents than others, why they are more likely to advance under certain regimes as opposed to others. And so while I make these assertions in my theory, much of my qualitative evidence and the motivations of the people that I'm actually studying really backs that up. We'd like to take a step back now and think about some of the larger implications of your study. One thing we want to ask you about is the relationship of your study of bureaucratic politics to the larger literature, uh, and in particular, the fact that studies of bureaucratic politics have tended to focus on developed countries, and especially the U.S., and one thing that's really interesting about your book is that it's an in-depth study of bureaucratic politics in a non-Western setting. I'm wondering how what you find in Kenya has shaped your thinking about how bureaucratic politics might vary across political settings, for instance, across regimes or across states at different levels of development. Could you talk a little bit about that? One thing that I have been thinking about a lot in writing this book and talking to other scholars of bureaucracy is the ways in which much of the literature on bureaucratic politics was formulated um, around policy issues and public administration problems that we saw um, out of the West and mostly actually the United States. I'm coming to this literature in a sense with a different case 
And that has really allowed me to see some of the assumptions baked into much of the bureaucratic politics literature in the United States and the West more broadly. And I think lots of those assumptions stem from the level of monitoring that the center can actually anticipate. This might in part be due to just the, the capital infrastructure that different countries have. So whereas in the U.S. we can imagine that state capitals are very well kind of connected by road to smaller cities or towns in the state, that's not always the case in, say, Kenya or other developing countries. And why that matters then is these bureaucrats in places that are less well connected then really have much more domain and have much more authority to act. They have a lot more leeway to implement their agenda for better or for worse, um, as I show in my book, but they ju just have, tend, tend to have much more power and it's quite difficult often to restrain their power. Another point that I think my book really highlights and in a sense shows the universality of some issues in bureaucratic politics is the role of embeddedness. And this is an idea that I actually thought about after reading Herbert Kaufman's The Forest Stranger, which is about forest strangers in the U.S. Forestry Service and the different problems that agency faces, one of them being embeddedness, that forest strangers that served too long in their locality ended up being emissaries from their locality to the, to the center. And uh, Herbert Kaufman talked about things like letting locals have more permits for logging or being lenient on central mandates that wouldn't have happened if those forest rangers weren't so embedded within their communities. And I remember after reading that, it really helped nail in that I was seeing the exact same thing in Kenya. So I want to say a contribution of my book is that it looks at public administration using a very different case from much of the past work on public administration. And by doing that, we can point out some of the assumptions that are latent in the bureaucracy research that comes out of the West. But then by focusing on a, another case, we can also at the same time see the issues and the ideas that actually travel across very different cases. Uh, I'd especially like to talk about the implications for democracy and for development. So starting with democracy, what do you see as the implications of these mechanisms, these strategies that presidents use um, to control bureaucracies, to exercise control over the population? What do you see as the implications of those strategies for Kenya's democracy? Is Kenya's democracy a less vibrant and competitive one because of leaders' abilities to use these strategies? I think about these questions a lot, Alan. One of the things that I find most exciting about Kenya is, has been its ongoing democratization and how many vestiges of the authoritarian era are still present under the democratic era. And so while many have talked about attempts to reform authoritarian era institutions, I've been really wary about how well that can happen. And that's because many of the, the relationships between bureaucrats and leaders still persist such that even if these agencies forward-facing are committed to supporting democracy, many managerial strategies might undermine these agencies' ability to fully support a democratic transition. Another issue to consider is how the ideas in this book relate 
to issues of representation within multi-ethnic societies. So for instance, Kenya in their 2013 constitution mandated that no single bureaucratic agency could be packed, that no agency could have more than 30% of its employees coming from one ethnic group. This makes sense in that the largest ethnic group in Kenya is only about 20 or 25% of the population. So the idea is that no one agency could be captured by any one ethnic group. Well, what I show in my book is oftentimes this doesn't happen. There aren't many agencies that are completely packed. And in addition, even if an agency is not completely packed, a leader can, in a sense, pack where it matters most. And so what we're seeing in the Kenyan case, what I find, is that the places that matter the most for regime stability are those where leaders are going to send their most loyal agents. And so reforms and quotas such as the one that we find in the Kenyan constitution prohibiting an agency from being packed by one ethnic group, while this is great, if we actually look down into the nitty-gritty of how these bureaucrats are managed, we might find that leaders are able to skirt these rules, skirt the spirit of the rule, even though they're abiding by the rule at first glance. What about development? An important feature of your argument is the way it points to vast heterogeneity in the ways in which the state will treat different areas of a country depending on their political alignments. So some areas get extra attention and resources from bureaucrats who feel rooted in the communities they're serving, while other areas face repression. So it's not obvious what the net consequences are for the economic and social welfare of a society. What do you see um, as the implications of these strategies of elite incorporation and bureaucratic manipulation are for development? So I'll start with the political science answer first. And especially within the literature on African politics, there's been a lot of work documenting what's uh, known as ethnic favoritism of a leader towards his particular home region or areas inhabited by co-ethnics of the leader. And this is a pretty robust relationship across many different um, sub-Saharan African countries and also outside of Africa. And one thing that I think my book can show is that the mechanism by which we have higher development and better development outcomes in a leader's co-ethnic areas, it's not only that these areas are getting more money, that these areas are getting more resources, but in part because these areas are not a threat to the leader, these areas are not at risk of engaging in some popular uprising, a leader can allow a bureaucrat to become really embedded in the area, is willing to assign bureaucrats who are going to really try to channel locals' issues up to the center because these areas don't need to be repressed and instead the leader wants to co-opt them, wants to keep rewarding them and so they're governed as such. Whereas across other parts uh, of the country and especially areas inhabited by groups who are in opposition to the leader, a leader can't afford to allow those kinds of positive development outcomes that arise from good management because he's fundamentally worried about keeping holds of power in that region, keeping societal control in that area. And so I think the book really shows then how we can get better development outcomes in co-ethnic regions, not through the standard mechanisms that much of the literature has talked about, but through a different mechanism, through better bureaucratic management. Stemming from this finding, I think my book has a clear policy 
prescription, which is allowing for bureaucrats to be good bureaucrats, allowing bureaucrats to really invest in an area such that they can better address the local issues that that area has. And so this, in a sense, is a very easy development fix that wouldn't be too costly, um, that wouldn't require oodles of, of new training or lots of resources poured into the area, but just by allowing bureaucrats longer tenure or hiring people from that same locality, this might be a quick and easy solution to improve development outcomes. But as I said before, this type of embeddedness does have its drawbacks, as my book shows and as um, other research coming out of Russia and China shows as well. And the, to go back to the forest ranger, uh, discusses the risks of embeddedness as well. But this is then a policy solution that should at the very least be considered among a range of other policy solutions. One thing that you mention in your book is that there's some evidence that democratization itself helps to reduce the politicization of the bureaucracy. Could you explain why that might be the case, why democratization might reduce bureaucratic politicization? And are we seeing any evidence that competitive elections are making the Kenyan bureaucracy harder for presidents to manipulate over time? Politicization of the bureaucracy was one of the key features under autocratic Kenya. And so how do we, we lessen this autocratic grip over the state and allow bureaucrats, instead of serving as agents to leaders, instead actually serving as, as agents to the population? This is going to require that bureaucrats feel as though their career trajectory is more based off of their performance as opposed to what they've done to help a leader stay in power or their loyalty. And so in that Kenya's elections are becoming more competitive, this is allowing bureaucrats to recalibrate the trade-off that they're making in their mind. Do I help uh, a leader win re-election by putting my thumb on the scale during the electoral count? This might be a very plausible thing to do if you're positive that that leader is going to win re-election. But if opinion polls are coming up neck and neck, well, then if you're a bureaucrat, you're less willing to do this because then, in, in a sense, there's only a 50% chance that you're going to back the winner. And so this groundswell of pressure of democratization and this increasing competitiveness and freeness and fairness of, of Kenyan elections is helping reduce the politicization of the bureaucracy. You write in the book about how the argument that you develop forces us to think differently about state capacity. Um, we often think of state capacity as this fixed or very slow-moving feature of a state that also tends to be quite uniform across a given territory, and that we should instead think about state capacity as something that might vary quite a lot across a territory and might change more quickly than we've tended to think. Can you explain what you mean? So state capacity is such a loaded concept. And I think, thinking back to my field seminar, I just got really upset whenever I saw, for instance, an Africa dummy about why states in Africa couldn't do things well. And I just remember thinking to myself, okay, maybe they're not building as many roads as they are in, say, I don't know, Sweden. But that doesn't mean that these states aren't good at other things, that they're not investing their capacity in other realms that might be more politically useful. And so thinking about 
the longevity of especially autocrats in many sub-Saharan African countries and how they relied on their quote-unquote weak states to help them stay in power. And so that was one of the tensions that I was really grappling with at the beginning of this book. One of the conclusions that I come to is that state capacity shouldn't be thought of as a fixed variable. I'm drawing from a lot of other scholars on bureaucracy, but especially a dear friend and colleague, uh, Martin Williams, who's at Oxford, who talks about how we should think about every state as having, in a sense, a ceiling of the amount of capacity that they might have. I'm not arguing that the Kenyan state could build roads as efficiently as Sweden today. There's clearly limits on the capacity that each country may or may not have, but instead leaders can toggle capacity within certain bands and at times actually deliberately lower that capacity if it means helping them stay in power and it's within their, their means to do so. And I think this idea about the politicization of state capacity and specifically leaders potentially lowering state capacity on purpose for political reasons is not mine alone. And it's come out in other recent work in comparative politics. So thinking about Alicia Holland, whose work on forbearance talks about variation in state capacity across Latin American cities and districts. And also thinking about Pavi Serena Ryan and her work about the capacity of the state and how it goes down in the Jim Crow South after integration. So these are ideas that I think are really coming to the forefront as more and more scholars really dig into the nitty gritty of how leaders manage their state. Thanks, May. Thanks so much for, for having this discussion with us. Thank you so much, May. Thank you so much, Yang Yang and Alan. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys in person when uh, COVID ends. That's our episode for today. Our editing and sound production are by Renault Chacoin McKenzie. Thanks to UBC for financial support. And our theme music is by Great North Sound Society. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you again soon.